Hier komen we in vreemd. Listening to Red Flag Radio, we record the show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Ros Ward. I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm joined by Liam Ward, who's the uh, technical producer in his home studio over there. Hi, Liam. Hey, Ros. And today we're joined by um, Sarah Garnham. And the topic of today's conversation is identity politics, and hopefully. Um, this is a discussion that people will want to engage with, want to share around this episode and start having some conversations um, about this topic because it's such a hegemonic kind of perspective for progressive people, um, left-wing people, younger people, and in kind of left-wing mainstream media outlets. So Red Flag Radio here is um, putting a different perspective on identity politics. And if you agree with what you hear or you want to discuss it with people, um, the best way to do that is to share this episode around and kind of start those conversations. So we do really appreciate people uh, sharing the podcast episodes with people they know on their social media. And, of course, we thank our supporters on Patreon who um, financially contribute to helping us produce this podcast. And if you want to join that esteemed group of people, you can do that on patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. So Sarah, you're officially a friend of the show now and you were on our first ever episode. So you'll always have a special place in our hearts. Um, And of course, you know, you're a regular contributor to red flag, the newspaper, and you've written in the Marxist Left Review, and you're currently um, in the process of finishing off a longer piece on this question of identity politics. Um, so thanks, thanks for, for being here. Us. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I kind of wanted to start in a, in a slightly funny place because it's one of these um, topics that really is talked about on all sides of politics and it's been weaponized by the right um, of politics as well now and taken up. And just recently um, it was our very own Prime Minister here in Australia, Scott Morrison, who brought identity politics into question again and it was at a speech at a um, United Israel Appeal dinner, which you imagine what a room full of scumbags that would have been, um, and talked about how identity politics was going to be the downfall of society. And he said, you're more than your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your language group, your age. Um, and so if, we're, if you're going to make a case uh, against identity politics here and ScoMo is against identity politics, does this mean you're on the same side? Uh, well, no, uh, your readers can be assured that we're definitely not on the same side as Scott Morrison. I think it's interesting this has become a refrain for the right of late. Uh, they use it with escalating frequency over the last few years um, and it's become similar to the way they talk about you know, cancel culture or political correctness, these dog whistle terms that actually are an argument to their base that we are defending the right against this surge of support for people of, uh, who have faced oppression, um, surge of support for more justice and equality in society. 
Uh, and it's actually about saying, um, you know, that we need to push back against any movements, any campaigns, any demands for more social justice. Um, and one of the ways that they then elaborate on this is to talk about how they're for all humans. Uh, so Scott Morrison at that speech you were mentioning to a whole bunch of Zionists, um, the Israel Appeal Dinner or whatever, um, was to talk about how instead of identity politics, we need a politics that incorporates all humans, looks after all human dignity, uh, which, you know, is pretty revolting in the context of the bombardment happening in Palestine right now. It's very reminiscent of the slogan, All Lives Matter, that was used in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's a complete furphy because the only way you can actually genuinely have the politics of All Lives Matter, a politics that's about humanity and, and calling for human freedoms for everyone, is to defend and articulate the slogans you know, things like fighting for a free Palestine, things like Black Lives Matter, slogans that do um, uh, talk about one particular group of people and the oppression they face and the fact that that represents a massive market inequality in our society and we need to fight to rectify it. Mm. So we absolutely defend fighting against oppression, labelling it as that, um, and we share nothing in common with the right. And I think it's uh, really... Um, sort of an example of uh, one of the kind of toxic spirals that um, identity politics can get people into, um, that it can seem on the face of it these days that sections of the right share some position with the left in opposing cynical identity politics. But in fact, we have to reject that totally and be forthright in our criticism of identity politics, but also um, not think that it means in any way we've shifted towards <laughs> some, um, you know, shared platform with the likes of bigots like Scott Morrison. Mm. Because, in fact, what Scott Morrison would like to convince people of is that there's no such thing as oppression based on identity, which, of course, socialists think that there is. Because, you know, I mean, that's hardly, it sort of goes without saying, but we can start there in a way that, of course, people are oppressed on the basis of a part of their identity or how they've been categorized or the social conditions of that, of that identity. So, how do we then delineate in summary? I mean, it's hard to summarise because there's so much written about it, but like if we were to try to summarise some of the key elements of identity politics, I was asked to do this by my PhD supervisor in a chapter I just got some feedback on saying, is identity politics the term you really want to use here? Like what does this actually mean? So what would you say it means? Um, well, I think that it definitely can be difficult to define and uh, there's two reasons for that. One is because it's become so pervasive. I think for decades now, amongst progressive sections of society, identity politics is the pervasive language and just entrenched understanding of so much of how the world works um, that it's been naturalised and so, you know, can make it difficult to, to define where it starts and where it begins. It's also the case that because it pertains to the question of identity, it often gets described as simply any politics that are to do with any identification. Uh, and I think that that's wrong. Under capitalism, identities are constantly being created because uh, there's this process of constantly carving up the population, oppressing different groups in different ways, whether that be national oppression, racial oppression, gender oppression, sexual oppression, and so on. Uh, so there's this constant process of singling out particular groups of people and assigning them an identity category um, and sort of trying to push people into that box. 
Um, but not all of the politics that emerge from that, um, and there always are politics emerging from that classification, are just identity politics. It's not simply a way of just describing the tribalism of a particular group of people or the advancement of a particular group of people's interests. Uh, it's actually based on a whole set of political assumptions. It's a set of politics, not just any politics around the question of identity. So I think the first one is that it's based on the assumption that the world is organised around a con the conflict between different identity groups. And in that, it uh, accepts rather than class being the fundamental way in which society is divided and other things springing from that, that there are these um, axes or groups of people who um, are sort of permanently assigned particular set of interests, whether they be women or people from a particular ethnic group, um, and that those interests are fixed almost innate, you know, depending on who, who's doing mm. the talking, um, are more or less described in an essentialist way, but that the world is organised around these conflicting identity groups. Secondly, and I think very, very importantly, identity politics is actually increasingly much more about personal identity than it is about group identity. So there is this baseline acceptance that there are these identity groups that are these kind of flattened out you know, uh, kind of uh, yeah, fixed groupings of of the population that uh, that ex that have the, have separate interests to others, um, but actually, so much of what's discussed in terms of how identity is understood and performed is about how it affects the individual. So it's about which experiences you've had as an individual that define and shape your identity, how able you are in society to express your individual identity. Uh, as a person that more and more might have uh, multiple identities rather than just one, but, you know, that, that's the whole idea of intersectionality, uh, how much pain you've been caused as a result of your identity. It's very individualised. It's very much about the sort of process of, of the personal shaping of, of personal identity. And that's one of the things that makes identity politics very different to some of the politics that emerged around uh, national or class or even gender questions prior to the 1970s, um, there was not this focus on identity as a personal attribute. Um, and I think that's actually one of the most negative aspects of identity politics. Mm. Flowing from that, um, and so I guess the second part of my definition of identity politics, as well as it being about personal identity, when we come to what the objectives of identity politics are, I think it's about two things. One, it's about allowing people to better express this personal identity. So it's about getting out the stories, um, getting into the cultural sphere, more, uh, more visibility and audibility for people from particular, in particular marginal identity groups um, and giving people the platforms to express their self-identity. Uh, and secondly and related, it's about representation. So it's about increasing the representation of people drawn from oppressed or sometimes even just marginal identity groups in all sorts of institutions across society, whether that be various government bureaucracies, the academy, uh, the corporate world. Um, it's about increasing representation um, throughout all of those spaces. Mm. And there's a uh, there's sort of an Im implied um, result of that increased representation is that that will somehow inherently change the nature of an institution. But, I mean... To me, the striking uh, example most recently, just to 
illustrate this is the idea that if there were more women in the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party wouldn't be a sexist mm. organisation. And so if they could just introduce quotas, get some more women, you know, and if there were half the people in the Liberal Party were people of colour, they wouldn't be racist anymore. I mean, that that's the logic of that increased representation. It's not just for the sake of it. It's because there's a belief that that will then um, implicitly create change. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, it's extremely problematic because all these uh, people today are taking up, rightly so, questions of oppression, but through the prism of identity politics, they're encouraged to think about oppression as being solely or mostly about the lack of representation inside particular institutions or the lack of cultural awareness, the lack of uh, cultural acceptance, all of these things that are expressions of systematic oppression a lot of the time, um, but are the symptoms of it. They're not um, the root of it. And so there's this diminishing of attention on questions of state violence, questions of economic inequality, questions of systematic political discrimination. These kind of things have to be front and centre of any serious understanding of, of oppression. But instead, we have a focus that's entirely on the other end of the spectrum uh, when it gets down to, um, you know, both personal experiences people have had, interpersonal interactions they've had, um, and also the sort of like, whether or not there's um, people drawn from oppressed places in high places, which is something that uh, has very little, uh, you know, whether or not there's more or less representation of various oppressed groups in institutions of government or the police or, or things like that has very little um, influence on the experience of oppression that the vast majority of people in that group face. Mm. And, of course, you can point to 100 examples of where somebody has been in a position of power from an oppressed identity group and um, absolutely reinforced that oppression, you know, the Indigenous First Minister in the Northern Territory when the intervention happened and, um, you know, women like even Julia Gillard who said she was against misogyny but still attacked single mothers. and so. But people yeah. um, accept I those limitations at the same time as continuing to make the same argument, which really confounds me sometimes because it's like, it's not. It's undeniable that, that that doesn't necessarily, or doesn't implicitly in any way make any difference. But yeah, it still continues to um, be a central strategy of identity politics. I mean, the other big mm. thing, and you've and you've said it's about it's you know the the focus on personal identity um, has increased so much, and people would talk about the influence of neoliberalism and ideology and stuff and everyone's individual and atomized and whatever. But it's not to say that, um, I mean, I guess like the way that people treat each other as individuals is important that we're not, that we don't attack people in sexist ways or racist ways, or even, even in, you know, what identity, what people might call microaggressions or whatever, like some of that, uh, you know, obviously it matters that we treat each other with respect, but, um, you know, how would you understand that part of identity politics? Because most people's day-to-day -day, um, uh, interaction of, you know, what they think they can do as a result of um, accepting these politics is to just be nicer to each other. Yeah, I think that... Human empathy um, and uh, 
I guess, building a society that's less atomized, people are more respectful for one another. These are all things left-wing people can support. But to see that as the main game is, frankly, so defeatist and so uninspiring as a social aim. And I think it flies in the face of what poll after poll tells us, especially about young people's views, which is that they do endeavour to be as sensitive as they can be to Uh, people who have had different experiences to themselves, um, who've had an experience of oppression. Uh, Social attitudes are very, um, uh, very much progressing on all of those questions. Um, But I think that to, so so to just focus on it sells people short. Um, I think, you know, there's a hunger out there for how can we actually end structural oppression? How can we actually take on the systems that are perpetuating this? And to leave things at the level of which language should you use? How should you be more respectful in interpersonal ways is is such a, a disservice to the kind of political moment that we're in right now where we're seeing these mass radical uprisings around Black Lives Matter in Australia, huge amounts of support for Indigenous rights, especially on Invasion Day, um, you know, huge no- amount of support in just recent years for trans rights, ongoing support um, around uh, questions of uh, women's rights, that kind of thing. So I think the other thing is that in terms of understanding where oppression comes from, you can't possibly understand um, because it's not, I'm not trying to say that there are no toxic or abusive behaviours that are perpetuated at a a micro level and interpersonal level. Of course there are. And it is the case that a lot of people experience oppression in that way. They don't necessarily feel themselves daily oppressed by the gender pay gap. They feel themselves Um, being treated in a sexist way by the people around them or something like that. But you can't hope to understand how oppression is actually organised in society and why it exists uh, just from looking at things that way. And I think um, if you look at, yeah, the question of sexism is a useful one. At the moment, there's this proliferation of programs that are about teaching men to respect women as a way of supposedly dealing with the domestic violence epidemic, as it's called. And I think that this is a really problematic approach uh, to the question because it it sort of insu- assumes there's an implicit idea that if boys don't get educated positively about there are these there are girls there are women and you should respect them that the default will be they'll just become these violent brutes when in actual fact the basis of the inequality between men and women that can result in interpersonal violence is the extreme you know, economic disparity between men and women's wages. Uh, it's the ongoing um, objectification and sexualization of women by multi-billion dollar industries like the pornography industry, the beauty industry all around the world. And so that actually needs to be understood, the structures of sexism. Um, and it's through understanding those that you can then start to make an argument to humanize women in the eyes of boys or men um, and and kind of, uh, yeah, I guess take on some of those sexist attitudes that stem from that. But sexism is not built from the bottom up. Not, no oppression is. It's not built from people having disrespectful attitudes randomly to some other group of people who happen to be, you know, visually or socially designated as different to them. Uh, it's built from the top down. And so we have to start by understanding all of those structures. Mm. I mean, just you saying there, like we have to teach men and boys to like humanize women. I mean, what a depraved society that we live in that that's part of the public discourse. <laughs> that you mm. know, how are we going to teach men? It's like, and then you teach them once that 
you know, women are equal and they should be respected. And they're taught 99 other times by the structures of society, all of the messages they get through, you know, popular media, politicians, advertising, the, the relationships they see in their family, everything around them. Um, and then you just think that one time and you go, no, no, but women should be equal, that that's going to be the thing that sticks. And, that you know, mm. like the same, the point that you make about this is not how people are born in society and it's not how other societies outside of capitalism have thought about gender. So it has to be something deeper and um, more ingrained than, uh, yeah, just something you could do, you could cover off in a 50-minute health and PE lesson. I guess that thing about uh, talking about things through that lens of lived experience or personal experience um, comes up against the question of privilege as well because one of the impacts that I've seen that's become more and more pronounced in the last few years is people refusing to even engage in discussions about oppression because they haven't personally experienced it because they see themselves as part of a privileged group and therefore as a white person you shouldn't even really talk about Black Lives Matter because you're privileged and you should just, the best thing you could do is shut up about it. I mean that's kind of the extreme end of it but what about this idea of privilege because it's really I think tied up with identity politics. Yeah, absolutely. I think that on the one hand, it's again about the fact that people's horizons are so low. So the idea that uh, people could not empathise with the oppressed because they have a slightly different lived experience to someone who's you know faces one particular um, political oppression or a vastly different lived experience. Uh, is is anti-human and completely flies in the face of so many social movements that we've seen throughout history for liberation that combine people with a vast array of different lived experiences but who can uh, recognise their common enemy, can recognise the common power that they can build by working together. So it's the opposite of all of that. It's about looking uh, for ways in which we can uh, be sort of made hyper aware of all of the minute different uh, things that divide us rather than the things that unite us. Um, on the other hand, it is still, it goes hand in hand with papering over the enormous differences that exist within oppressed groups. So uh, an example um, that just happened this week is the Attorney General in the Northern Territory uh, giving the go-ahead to new racist youth bail laws, which uh, Senator down here in Melbourne, Lydia Thorpe, uh, came out and vigorously opposed as racist rightfully. Uh, but she she assumed that the Attorney General was a white man, um, or white at, at the very least, um, and included this reference to uh, their whiteness in her speech denouncing these reforms. It later transpired that the Attorney General uh, in the Northern Territory is actually an Aboriginal woman. Um, and so she is someone who has what is literally a privileged position. She has a privileged state government um, position. Um, and she has, as a result of that, an interest in and is perfectly happy to introduce these racist laws. People uh, in the working class who may have higher living standards than other people drawn from more oppressed groups have no interest in implementing the kind of laws that someone who's working directly for a government 
um, like this woman, um, Selena Yubo, does. Um, they, uh, they have no interest in perpetuating the oppression of others. So to go around conflating the privilege of people in high office and, you know, then even the super wealthy, the capitalist class, with the lack of disadvantage that some people amongst the working class have uh, is, a, is a grave political error because actually working class people drawn from all different oppressed groups have similar interests and derive no privileges um, by way of the fact that they just happen to escape some particularly uh, horrific form of oppression doled out to one group. Um, and as soon as you start seeing the relative disadvantages of some people within the working class as um, as a lack of privilege and, and the privileges that are afforded to others, you start to get things that are actually about calling for a revoking of these supposed mm. privileges. Uh, so there's the idea that white workers should pay the rent uh, by actually reducing their wages in order to, um, uh, I guess, yeah, pay their way, um, introduce some reparations uh, from, from their own wages uh, to Aboriginal people to make up for their oppression, the idea that women, that men should take a pay cut in order to rectify the pay divide. All of these things ignore the real culprits, the people at the top of society, the corporations, the governments that are actively benefiting from the disenfranchisement of so many people. Um, and the idea that we should be looking for ways to shave off uh, things that working class people enjoy or have won rather than trying to bring other people mm. within the working class up to that same standard and actually, um, yeah, fight for more for everybody is uh, such a backwards looking mm defeatist kind of political outlook and I think that it's it's really corrosive that um, people think that this is something that needs to be combated because the other way that it gets talked about I guess is not so much um, the thing I've already mentioned about actively campaigning against privileges in a material sense but then the other side of it is examining the privileged mindset so there's this idea that in particular white people these days should spend inordinate amounts of time navel-gazing about how they perpetuate in their mind, um, you know, the, the colonial uh, setup of Australia, supposedly, or, or um, you know, how whatever it might be, some sort of um, privilege that they enjoy, they need to examine it, deconstruct it. And actually, this just makes for a very narcissistic uh, situation where people are walking around pondering how they can be you know, better mentally, um, rather than, again, what, what, what we need to be talking about is how do we end oppression? How do we liberate people? In what way does someone going on some deep, dark dive into their mind and working out when or where they've been made, um, you know, they, they've, they've sort of erred or been uh, expressed something that's supposedly a, an expression of privilege. How does that actually advance the cause of any oppressed mm. group? It simply doesn't. People should spend less time doing that, more time on the streets organising to fight this system. Um, and so, yeah, I think the whole discussion of privilege, all of the books that are written about it, how to workshop it, how to deconstruct it, it is such self-indulgent and circular nonsense um, and it does nothing to actually damage or in any way challenge the ways that oppression is actually organised in society. I agree with that. And I think, I mean, it, but it's, it has an internal logic. So, I mean, it's not completely bizarre that that's what you end up with is either a 
sort of self psychoanalysis <laughs> or um actually turning back to reformism to kind of do the work for you to appeal to higher powers to increase mm. representation or you know congratulate the abc for having more indigenous drama or whatever um and then mm. and going back to that kind of side of things as well so there's nothing radical about <laughs> any of those kind of reformist demands or the way that they're um, campaigned around and there's nothing radical about just having a, a whole process of self-analysis so there's a it, it's, it fits with the logic of um you know the the political uh, rationale for ident identity politics and it, and it should be said at this mm. point i guess that there's not all of these people that say hey you know when you ask them you know what do they think about politics what kind of activism are they engaged in if they're engaged in anything there's not all these people that say well i believe in identity politics it's sort of it's never conceived of as this is my political framework but it is people's political framework it's just um it's only really ever analyzed i guess from the outside in a way because people who are in it just think that is the way that you should do politics and i think that can make it a slippery thing to debate with people because they don't necessarily say you know, here's my framework. Have you read the Communist Manifesto? What do you think about what Marx wrote about class divisions in society and oppression and exploitation and alienation? Let, let's talk about it. There isn't, you know, um, a handbook of identity politics, but there are, as you say, a thousand books about how to um, not be white privileged anymore written by white people who make heaps of money out of them anyway. So mm. who benefits from this kind of... Um, yeah, this kind of uh, bringing together of these ideas of what we're calling identity politics. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, again, because of what you just said, the, the, the naturalisation of identity politics, even though people can, I think, clearly call out some of the most cynical examples of identity politics. The most often cited one is Hillary Clinton and her pretty clearly cynical attempts to use identity politics to get a vote out for herself as a woman, um, despite everything she represents in terms of her reactionary social program and everything. But um, then at the same time, people accept the underlying logic of identity politics. So in terms of who benefits, yeah, there, there are people, there, there are the Hillary Clintons of the world. And that's not just some outlier. That's not just something that we can say, well, put that in a box over there because she's such a cynic. Um, there's actually an expanding layer of politicians. America is rife with it. The whole Democratic Party basically has become very proficient at using identity politics to cover over um, what they stand for in terms of um, widening economic inequalities over the last decades, um, the expansion of the American empire by saying, well, we're going to do it in a woke way. We're going to do it with uh, as much representation from Indigenous people, from Black people, from women that we can possibly um, fit into these institutions of oppression and empire. Um, so that's becoming part of the course and also in the corporate world. And that's, that's happening in Australia too. So there's been this huge um, uh, a huge amount of corporations coming out and um, and 
presenting their diversity targets. A lot of these are around uh, getting more women into um, into organisations, but also increasingly Aboriginal people, people drawn from other oppressed groups as well. Um, so you have organisations like Westpac uh, pushing hard their 50% women quota. You have state-run um, departments like the Queensland Transport Department um, pushing hard for this. And you have um, governments actively, uh, I guess, arguing that there should be more diversity in a whole range of uh, projects that are set up and so on, funding people from oppressed backgrounds in order to give some uh, progressive veneer to all of this. So I think that is an example of where identity politics benefits the rich and powerful, benefits the ongoing uh, the, the ongoing running of capitalism um, by just initiating these extremely superficial measures of getting people from oppressed layers to be part of uh, overseeing these, these institutions and systems. Um, and I think that there's also a whole industry that's been built up around promoting diversity that is about um, workshopping public servants, workshopping people from various organisations in how they can be more culturally sensitive, more aware. There are lots of articles at the moment about how this is a booming industry, literally. Um, you can get paid uh, thousands of dollars an hour for, um, you know, talking to people about how they, um, you know, shouldn't discriminate or some, you know, things that are quite inane, quite low level, um, but actually that is seen as um, the frontier of taking on oppression is making workplaces more culturally sensitive, uh, regardless of what kind of unethical, revolting mm. capitalist uh, enterprise. They probably do it um, in the army to be. These organisations are upset. Yeah, well, the army the is, you know, yeah. there's a battle going on in the army and the CIA <laughs> over how woke it should be and, and is it even possible to make it so woke given that it's an institution of violent aggression and imperialism. Yeah. Um, so it's ridiculous on one level that these organisations can try and sanitise themselves in this way, but this is a this is big bucks now. This is a big industry. Um, and then there are, I think, more uh, a whole range of bureaucracies and, I guess, arms of existing bureaucracies and organisations that are less nefarious um, than some of the things like the army and the CIA. Um, and exist within the community sector, the health sector, the education sector, and generally are, you know, organisations that argue that they're, they're there to sort of help people in society and to a certain extent are supportable in that way, um, but have become so invested in just this thing of representation and diversifying um, and so on that they are building whole layers of, I think, middle class advocates of identity politics, people who are drawn from these oppressed layers, who have absolutely an interest in just perpetuating the most short-sighted program against oppression imaginable. So you wonder why the, the, um, the main aspects of identity politics have begun ab become about things like personal identity, cultural sensitivity, cultural expression, and so on. And I think it's because the people who have the most platforms in which they can talk about anti-racist initiatives, anti-sexist initiatives within this NGO sector, within the community sector, within sort of the formalised activist sector rather than the actual left, um, these people have an interest in putting forward a moderate view of what it means to take on oppression um, because that's all that they need to maintain their position as people that have made it into these bureaucracies. 
Um, so I think we have to be aware that there is a self-interest there and a, and a political process going on in the same way that people who head up trade unions have an interest in peddling reformist politics. It's the same as the people that head up all of these identity politics institutions. Mm-hmm. They have an interest in pushing identity politics and actually they have an interest in not pushing the politics that are about actually about imagining full-scale liberation and, and, and massive destabilising social struggles. Um, so identity politics is taken up much more broadly um, than within these bureaucratic layers. It's become common sense for left-wing people. And so I'm not saying that everyone who, you know, thinks from an identity politics lens is some sort of organised cynic um, <laughs> for the diversity industry or anything like it. But I think seeing that the people that speak the loudest, that have the, lou- the biggest platforms um, on these questions, um, that write the articles in the, you know, have the famous columns about all this stuff, get the media spots, um, they're all, uh, by and large, people that uh, are benefiting from identity politics and by this, from this very limited view of what it means to take on oppression. And from oppression itself continuing, because it's the same as the trade union leadership, if there's no class battle, you know, if there's no um, boss, then there's no negotiation. So they need the boss to keep being there, attacking workers for them to have a job to do in the same way the, you know, um, cultural sensitivity trainers and organisations need there to be racism and sexism continuing and all other forms of oppression for them to be able to tell people how to not be quite so racist or sexist or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting parallel. Let's just quickly uh, zoom back a bit to to see where we've ended up with this being so hegemonic because I think, you know, um, and I think it's useful actually to draw that distinction as well between the genuine left and the kind of progressive small-l liberal commentariat who really do peddle these um, kind of politics and ideas. So kind of what happened to the left to allow this to become so hegemonic, I guess, is probably one way of thinking about it historically. Yeah. Well, I think the period that we refer to as neoliberalism, uh, which – you know, by any measure, the left and the workers' movement sustained a thorough beating throughout. Um, that's that's clear. And as well as working class organisation being set back, unions being attacked, um, radical politics being pushed to the background, there was also a fragmentation of society, uh, a kind of a retreat into individualism, which I think very much fits with identity politics. Um, I think that we can say that it begins... Um, with some of the activists and and people that had been active, though, in the struggles, the big social movements of the 60s and 70s, and when these movements started to go into retreat, out of frustration at that situation, many of the collectivist, um, big-scale political initiatives, imaginings of liberation, fighting for something um, on on the basis of, of building alliances and, and genuine solidarity, that became unviable after the, the economic crash of 73 and the downturn. And so more and more there was this retreat into 
Well, the things we can control are personal discussions about how oppression works, personal discussions about how it feels, consciousness raising about how it feels, how we can, you know, examine those feelings both amongst people who are oppressed, the people who lack oppression and are therefore privileged. This this is when this um, idea starts to emerge as well. Um, so, so there's a sort of the retreat of the struggles and the fact that people kind of turned inwards, um, literally, um, was part of this turning towards what's going on at a, at a more micro-personal level. But then also many of the key proponents of these um, movements moved into, into the bureaucracies that I just described. So there was a huge influx into the academy uh, of people who had been drawn from these activist milieus. Um, other government bureaucracies were expanded at this time. This was there was a conscious strategy on the part of the ruling class to say, well, we can actually have a better, more stable political system if we incorporate people that are drawn not just from oppressed layers but from these movements themselves and we get people who have argued for social justice, argued, you know, march for equality um, to now be the people selling moderate reforms and just fighting for a little bit more um, diversity, smashing the glass ceilings, that kind of thing. And in... It was interesting that that layer of people in forming actually made class a more central question to how to understand oppression than it than than before because they actually created a class division between these oppressed groups that previously they had been less class division about because they'd been so systematically as a whole uh, suppressed by the political discrimination throughout society in a situation where there is this elevation of oppressed people into higher places press faces in high places, um, you get a much more distinct class um, class rift between ordinary working class people who still experience the oppression of being part of that group and then the people who've made it and um, can enjoy all of the privileges that are part of being part of the upper echelons, the middle class or even the capitalist class um, and that in many ways overcome or, or subordinate their, the oppression that they face as, you know, being black or a woman or whatever. So um, that's a that whole process of co-optation, and not in a um, you know willful co-optation in the sense of uh, all these people were happily volunteering to be part of these institutions, um, is a big part of where identity politics comes from. I think that even before that, there are definitely you know it's something we we wouldn't have time to go into today, but there are definitely political discussions going on within the movements at their high point, at the high point of the uh, anti-racist, anti-sexist, you know, gay liberation movements of the 60s and 70s um, that reflect some of the problems of identity politics. So there was beginning to be this idea that people who um, experience a particular form of oppression, that they experience that because of a social system that's different to capitalism. Um, and in part, this was because many of the people who called themselves socialists and communists at the time, could not appropriately explain how oppression fit into the capitalist system, and in particular because they looked to Russia, um, which was renowned for its discriminations against, you know, women, gay people, so on. Um, this this became this, uh, yeah, uh, one of the ways, there was a, a counter-reaction to that, I guess, um, and there was more political theorisation of things like white supremacy, things like patriarchy, uh, supposed systems that exist outside of capitalism and are responsible for a particular form of oppression and therefore need to be fought separately, autonomously, um, and that Marxism can't 
provide the answers around this. And I think that's that's fundamentally wrong. And there are aspects of that theorization that help to build the common sense that is identity politics today. But I also think that we can't, you know, the, the movements of those times, which were much more collective, and there was this kind of openness to discussing how to actually fight oppression, uh, definitely can't just be conflated with the identity politics that we experience today. Mm. But there is definitely some roots there. And I think that that particular bit of history does help to explain why people can think this is um, something that comes from the left or is of the left. Those debates around in the 60s, you know, between Maoists and Stalinists and the new left and all of that, because it's just that simple contradiction that was so stark that you looked at the Soviet Union that is supposedly socialist and it's riddled with oppression. So therefore, we have to do something else to get rid of oppression that's not included in socialism. So what's that? Exactly. And yeah. so then that you know that led to people thinking of all these different uh, yeah um, systems that they had to theorize and approaches that they had to take and so on. So I think that can make people you know then people can find um, yeah a left wing kind of historical basis for identity politics that that uh, comes out at various points along the way in different people's writing who also self-describe as Marxists or socialists and, and adhere to these uh, identity type politics as well. So, yeah, I think it, it's, it's useful to know that, that kind of history. Um, we should start talking about strategy and the difference in strategy, I guess, that, that's, um, that is born out of these um, two different and opposing theories, Marxism and identity politics. And I think one way to... Um, encapsulate that is to think about the difference between the role of allyship in identity politics and the role of solidarity in socialist politics. So what's the difference in your um, eyes between those two things, between allyship, which is something that people do promote in a, as something you can do, even if you're not from a, a press group, even if you're privileged, you can lend someone some allyship and the sort of um, politics of solidarity that are at the core of, of socialist um, strategies of fighting oppression. Yeah, these things often get equated by people on the left, and I think it's wrong. I think allyship is a concept that's closely allied with uh, privilege theory, and we've already discussed that at some length. So the idea that people who derive no material benefits from the oppression of others, they don't actually extract any, <laughs> you know, any wealth, any more kind of advantages in society by going around and beating up on some other group. Um, but they happen to have less disadvantage because, you know, they don't fall into this or that oppressed category that singles them out for particular discrimination by the state or by society. Um, to, uh, to have that concept is to completely... Um, deny the possibility for solidarity. Um, so people with that concept can say and um, do say that, you know, people who enjoy certain privileges as a result of other people's oppression can endeavour to be good allies. Often this is a never-ending quest for perfection that can never be realised. You're constantly going to be paying penance because, like we talked about, these privileges are inbuilt, they're internal somewhere in the brain and cannot be rooted out. Um, so you have to be engaged in this constant process of examining 
yourself um, in relation to um, a group a group of oppressed people, and uh, you can only hope to offer some sort of assistance role in times when they choose to struggle. Um, but you cannot venture any opinions about the political way forward. Um, and you cannot see that the struggle is about you or that you have any actual material interest in this struggle. Um, so this is uh, depoliticizing for one thing, the idea that there shouldn't be an active exchange of opinions and political debate about all questions, including questions of oppression, um, just because some people don't experience it is uh, patronizing. Um, it belittles the questions of uh, oppression to ones that are just about cultural sensitivity rather than real politics, real strategy, um, and that require heated and serious dialogue and debate. Um, but it's also uh, in, you know, divisive and can't come anywhere near the kind of um, the heights that solidarity actually reaches because solidarity is about saying, on the one hand, people have an actual interest in coming together around other people's struggles. So when we, as we will do at the weekend on the at the emergency rally for Palestine, come out and say, in our thousands, in our millions, we are all Palestinians, this is a declaration of support for their struggle, uh, identification with their struggle in the sense that we share a common enemy, that Israel is part of the imperialist system of capitalism, that our government is perpetuating, um, you know, this same system, all of these things. Um, that's extremely necessary and powerful. But solidarity goes beyond that as well because some people can say, well, that's nice, that's solidarity. It's this kind of like putting a flag in the sand to say, you know, I stand with you. But solidarity isn't just about expressing support. It's about power. Uh, and that's important that we, we want to move towards um, a political approach where people are actually thinking through how do we mobilise a social power that contend, can, can contend with the powers of the state, the powers of um, that perpetuate oppression. Um, and that's what brings you to the, the working class as the social agent um, because it's the powerful class. It's the class that has the social capacity to shut down production. It's also the biggest social class, the biggest section of the population. It's one that incorporates all of the people, you know, people from all different oppressed backgrounds. But that's not the key thing. The key thing is that it has the social capacity to not just mobilise in the streets and express support for particular issues, but take on capitalist society in a material way by shutting down production, shutting down aspects of the system where it hurts most in order to exert our will over that system. So that is solidarity. And solidarity uh, has, you know, always been a tradition that can only be understood as rooted in the labour movement, rooted in the working class. Um, it involves sections of working class taking positions of solidarity with, with oppressed groups from other, you know, non-working class backgrounds. Um, but the reason it's so powerful and the central kind of aspect of it is about workers starting to identify with one another. It's about workers starting to identify their class power. So going beyond a strike at one workplace to say a strike across a whole regional area that um, doesn't just, I guess, amplify the power of the workers um, in, in that narrow way, but politically deepens the working class's understanding of itself as a, um, a whole social layer that can disrupt and um, change the way that society is structured. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, all of that is so essential in terms of um, the, the 
that socialists have an answer to all of these questions, you know, and that we have a goal that is the liberation of all humanity and the smashing of all forms of oppression and exploitation. And so I just think if people are listening to this and thinking that they agree with that goal, then you have to really take this question of identity politics seriously because it is not addressing that goal and it's not getting us anywhere closer to that end point. And, um, you know, if you've got something out of this discussion uh, and want to engage more in some discussions with people like me and Sarah and Liam, then um, there are places you can do that. And, um, you know, there are increasingly protests that you can come to and um, join and show your solidarity in ways that are collective. And I think even just uh, if you've never, if you're listening to this and you've never been to a protest before, but you have spent a lot of time thinking about your own ideas, you'll feel the difference um, that being around a large group of people uh, for a common purpose uh, has and the impact that that can have, not just on the cause that you're fighting for, but on you and on, um, you know, the, the way you feel about yourself and your own power in the world. So, yeah, I think this is, has been really interesting. Thank you, Sarah, for being on. And, yeah, keep an eye out for, for um, the Marxist, the next Marxist Left Review, which hopefully will have this in it. Is that what we're aiming for, Sarah? What we're aiming for. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're aiming for. And there is actually, there's a couple, there's a few good articles in the Marxist Left Review that point in this direction and one um, that Sarah has written before around, yeah, the, the question of uh, identity and, um, uh, yeah, so we'll link those in the show notes for people to read a bit more. But, yeah, do do come and join uh, organised socialists wherever you are in Socialist Alternative. Also check out the Programme for Socialism in Sydney, which is a conference, a big national conference coming up in September. Is the next um, chance you'll get to be uh, absolutely um, yeah, right in the heart of all of these kind of discussions and be part of it. And tickets are available and now the program, I think, has just gone up in the last couple of days. So you'll be able to um, check that out, Socialism Sydney, if you, uh, if you follow the link there or just Google it. So uh, this is Red Flag Radio. Thanks for listening. We have a world to win. <laughs>